Your film, The Queen of Hollywood Boulevard, you say is the anti-La La Land? You said jokingly, which I think is great. Um, I'm curious if you feel that film, your film, is more realistic than La La Land. For those watching from another part of the country or world and seeing LA, and I know you've talked about you love the underbelly, which I also do too. There's like a weird fascination with that. Um, do you think some of The Queen of Hollywood Boulevard is a much more truer tale than La La Land or no? Oh, I absolutely think that Queen is a lot more of a truer uh, tale than La La Land. I think La La Land is one of the more, uh, I mean, I, I have big, I love the last 10 minutes of the movie because it's, he's a very good filmmaker. There's no doubt about it. His chops are amazing. But knowing that and filming in many of the same locations that they filmed in La La Land, it's as if the world two feet away and two feet to the left and two feet to the right don't exist in his version of Hollywood. Because, and in my version of Hollywood, which is where I live and I've spent a long time documenting, it, I think there is a reality that is in front of you there that you have to um, look at, you know? I mean, Hollywood is probably has one of the more concentrated um, population of homelessness in the country. And I don't think there's a shot in La La Land that shows one person beyond even homeless, maybe slightly impoverished or not dressed impeccably in that area or in anywhere in LA. Um, but I just think, you know, it's different point of views. I think some people are fascinated. I think we were dealing with very similar themes. Um, you know, the idea of the, the dream of success and the dream of fame. And I think there's just two very different paths that maybe you can take when you start looking at, at that world. At what it's like, you know, for, you know, my film was like the other side. What happens to a woman who comes to LA to be an actress 40 years later and she never became that actress, but she may, still made something of herself, even if it's a very small enclave and echelon that she inhabits. And maybe that's not the most PC or, you know, nice place in the world that she happens. You know, it's a strip club. It's on the, you know, the, the shady side of the street. But it's still hers. And I think in La La Land, you had a lot of people living a dream that was a much more selfish and much more self-serving and did not in any way try to realistically look at Hollywood. I mean, this street where it's so funny because we both have the shot, have, have the same shot of the mural of celebrities in it, in the film. And that street of and on Hollywood and uh, Wilcox is one of the most like places of like illicit, illicit, salacious actions I've ever seen in my life. Like you know, um, and I wanted my film to feel the way that street smells, and I think he wanted that street to exist in some other universe. And I think that's maybe the difference between us, you know, but. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know if it's more realistic. I think there's also those people that come here and they realize their dreams and they find their fame and they, they do whatever it takes to become that person. I just don't necessarily care that much for those type of stories. I'm with you on that. And, and I thought it was beautiful what you said earlier. You said there was like two different realities, right? Sort of like, and the other one doesn't see the other reality. I think that's a very true statement about living in LA. I mean, you could work with someone 
and they could be living in a completely different reality than you are. Um, and you're still inhabiting like the same workplace. Really. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, it has to do with LA with the idea that we're in cars all the time. People don't walk around. People don't come into communication with each other that much. I mean, I'm someone I walk everywhere. Like I really like enjoy being, that's part of the reason I live in Hollywood. Cause it's like living in a city. I'm from New York. So it reminds me of that a little bit, you know, in New York, you're crammed in subways together. You're getting cabs together. You bump into each other. You're just, you're always interacting. Well, in LA, I think there's this, a little bit, this like rejection of other people. Like you don't, you just live in your bubble and whatever you do in there is fine. And I wanted the opposite. I wanted to make like a movie about a woman of the people. And I think that in something like La La Land, it's just, it's not about any interaction to the people. It's that their own world is everything, you know? At the same time, I think it, it really executes it very well. And tell us what the story is about, about uh, Queen Mary. About Queen, uh-huh. yeah. Uh, the Queen of Holly Boulevard is about a, um, an aging strip club owner on the eve of her 60th birthday. Mm-hmm. And she runs a strip club in Hollywood. It's her love, her joy, it's everything. And she's a single mom. She brought up her son, who like better or for worse is her other joy in life. And a man from her past, Duke, played by Roger Guinevere Smith, comes to reclaim a debt on how uh, clear it's, it, it, oh, I keep it mysterious and vague because that's just sure. how I am. Yeah. But um, you don't have to give away. Yeah, basically, it's 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 about how it's how she got the club, and now it's time to repay her debt on her 60th birthday, and she has to run a gauntlet basically through the underbelly of Los Angeles to not only save her club but also save her son who's being held as ransom. Wow. Yeah. And the the protagonist is played by your mom. Yes, the, the protagonist, Queen Mary, is played by my mom, Rosemary Hochschild, and she's in every single frame of the film, and she killed it. You said something in another interview about seeing the movie The Crying Game, and that you learned from either seeing it or not being able to see parts of it, you learned about boundaries and censorship from the point of like an audience or something. I was just wondering if you could expand on that because I thought that was fascinating. Oh, cool. The story and everything. Yeah. Well, so sort of, I have a predilection to make violent movies. I've always been attracted to them. Uh, kind of uh, harsh realities and violent instances. Um, and that's where creatively I, I um, am attracted to. So it all started, and I at one point pinpointed this moment. Uh, my mom, my mom was a single mom, bringing me up in New York, and she wanted to go see the film *The Crying Game* um, over at the Angelica Film, the Angelica Film Center in New York City. So she took me because she couldn't get a babysitter. So I went with her, and there's a very violent scene in *The Crying Game* with. Uh, Irish actor's name. Uh, I can't remember his name. Stephen Ray. There's a violent uh, scene with Stephen Ray and a uh, and the love interest, who's also a transvestite. And my mom knew it was coming. So she said, hey, she took me. She took me outside the theater and said, can you, you know, you, you sit with an usher and I'm gonna go watch this scene because I want to see the film. But she knew it was coming because her friends had told her. So, you know, so I knew well, I'm not supposed to watch this. Like, I gotta see this. <laughs> so, in the doorway of the Angelica Film Center was a portal that you could see into the theater. 
and I watched the scene through the porthole out of the door with no sound. And it was that moment that I knew I wanted to make, I wanted to be part of transgressive cinema where I, and I couldn't put a word on it then, but now I think I understand more is that, that I, I wanted to, to break down that, that doorway between the audience, the, between what you're not supposed to see and what you can see. And I think that's what I learned in that moment was this idea that as an audience member, you know, there's these violent moments and we're allowed these glimpses into them. And there was like a certain voyeurism, a certain, a certain taboo that I wasn't being allowed in on. And that's all I ever wanted to do since then in these films. So yeah, that moment was very, um, what's the word, uh, informative to my, to, to later, you know, 20 years later when I started, I, I actually got the chance to make a movie and I realized, you know, why do I have this predilection for violence? Why do I want to always push it? It's because it was something that was taken away from me that I couldn't have. And that even drew, drew me closer to it. That's interesting because it goes back to what you said earlier about like living these two different realities and, and how there's people that could be right next to you and they're living a different reality than you. And I can remember being younger and I grew up in somewhat of a conservative town and there were kids that I played with that weren't allowed to watch public television. And to me, I wasn't, you know, I was watching Three's Company and that was probably too progressive for my age, you know? And so I just think that's interesting that that having been sort of kept from you. Oh yeah, I mean, that's what's fascinating to me, right? And I think that's like kind of what's created great. I mean, you look at Scorsese or Paul Schrader, right? Both grew up in very conservative religious households, right? Paul Schrader didn't see a film until he was over 18. And all his films kind of deal with violent, this lack of faith, this alienated outsider in a world that doesn't want him. So it's totally affected them. I, on the other hand, was almost allowed to see too much. So this moment of not being allowed to see something was really, and being inhibited, really to me prove that there were boundaries that people didn't want you to cross as the viewer, but I wanted to cross them. So I think, yeah, it's the same thing, right? Like we, we're products of our environment. And I think that might push us totally in the other direction than intended by, you know, the person in charge. Very true, yeah. And you were raised by two artists, which is interesting because most people, it seems like a lot of people are raised by people that aren't artists and then they prevent their kids from wanting to be artists because they want to save them from some of the the, the harsh realities of doing anything creative. So how was that being raised by, by either one person or knowing that two parents that you had were creative? I mean, it, it was a pretty interesting childhood for sure. Um, you know, my mom and dad, they came here from South Africa in the 70s to escape apartheid and not, they were just uh, very anti-apartheid and anti the political systems of Africa at the time. So they came here and my dad was a filmmaker, my mom was an actress, and you know, eventually they went their different ways. And my dad moved out to LA and became a filmmaker. And he always told me, he was like, you don't wanna do this. He was like, go be a doctor, be a lawyer, whatever you do, do not become a filmmaker. So of course I was like, well, I'm becoming a filmmaker <laughs> then dad, because he said no. Um, probably should have listened to him. And you basically have to be a lawyer half the time in this industry anyway. But, um, and then my mom, on the other hand, was extremely supportive. And I lived with her most of my life in New York. And she was always, you know, like, be creative, helping me create, supporting creativity. Bought me a still camera when I was very young that I used all the time to take photos with. And that was kind of my first inlet into film. So it was interesting. And, and then I also watched my dad who, you know, he had a lot of struggle. He's, he made some great films and he had some struggles with films. and he's. And it was, you know, the industry wasn't always the best to him and, and it changed. And 
you know, he's always managed to keep up with it and do his thing. But so I had a very much a firsthand glimpse into also, you know, this is a really hard industry. This is, and that, it goes back to La La Land, right? I think La La Land starts with the thesis that it's a hard industry, but that makes it seem like it's very easy. And for me, I think there's a lot of us that, you know, we put a lot, we let a lot ride on the filmmaking, on being a filmmaker or being an artist. And when it doesn't work out, it really hurts. And I saw that firsthand as well. And I've had it happen to me firsthand, but different, you know, with you put something out there and maybe the response isn't what you wanted and it's like your child. So yeah, as a, I was very lucky to have supportive parents and I was lucky to have an insight and I'm pretty crazy that I wanted to go do this, but I couldn't imagine doing anything else in the world. I get the sense and maybe I told you this when we had you on the panel, but that you've always been like two decades ahead of, of people like even growing up. Was that hard for you? I mean, I'm just assuming I shouldn't assume, but I could see that in you that you were like more advanced than maybe some I, other kids. In I don't know if I was. I mean, I went through a lot of, honestly, I have a lot of personal trials and tribulations. I went through growing up. So I think creatively I got, I, I was, I was allowed to express myself at an early age and there was no pushback against that. And that was very important. On the other hand, I think with that, I was a terrible student. I was not great, uh, always socially younger, you know, got in a lot of trouble, um, got arrested, all that stuff. Like, so that came with that. So I think, you know, there is a give and take to everything, but I am very grateful that I got to be creative at a young age and that was supported and that no one ever really pushed me in any other direction. And I feel blessed in that way because I know a lot of people who are amazing filmmakers now and it took a lot, you know, they had to reject their family's wishes and move away from home and go far away. And they're super successful and, and really fantastic artists. But there came from the opposite, where they really had to push back against the world that they were brought up in. So, you know, I think it's, you know, the luck of the draw a little bit. I think on your website, um, you had a quote that just said that um, you have to be obsessed, or maybe it was a Q&A, you have to be obsessed to make this work. So I just think that's interesting. I mean, because if, if you know that you had struggles before, sometimes people take an easier path. But if I think if you've dealt with risk and just always feeling like stuff's not going to work out, then you're willing to take sort of a long shot. I, mean, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I think you have to be obsessed. Like there's, there's no get rich quick scheme in the film, at least in my version of this film industry. Like you want to make personal films or you're not getting rich the next day when it comes out, you're probably gonna have to put your own money, your own credit, your own time, your own family, your own relationships on the line. And that's only worth it if you are absolutely obsessed and no one can tell you to be obsessed. You're just going to be obsessed. It's not, it's going to overwhelm you and take you. And then at the end of the day, you're going to have to give, put it out in the world. And when it comes out there, you're done, you know, you've done your job. And yeah, I really do think that this is a film industry of uh, uh, that filmmaking more than the industry because the industry is a whole other thing. But I think almost anyone who works in the film industry is absolutely crazy. You have to be right. Like, sure. Yeah. You just, there's no reason to do this. You can work at a bank. You can have a great life. But for me, it's kind of like I get one shot at this life and like, this is what I love. And I even like many days, you know, only have a hundred dollars in my bank account, but it doesn't matter because I get to make a movie. I get to work. I get to write. I get to have great conversations with people. It, it opens outlets in your life that no money or 
career opportunities could open for you? Well, I know I've known a lot of people that work corporate jobs that aren't happy and then it manifests into office politics and you know because you're dealing with the same set of people same dynamic almost every day and I think that people start to get crazy there too I think it's just a contained crazy absolutely but I, you know I think also like you know we're all trying our best to survive in, in this crazy world and there's you know all the rules that people give us seem to change all the time so you know I think there's no I think there was a time in my life where I used to think, you know, oh, you're gonna do a corporate job, you know, whatever that's you. But I, it's all it's all just your path and like your journey. And as a filmmaker, like you're gonna you're gonna be miserable a lot of the time. You're gonna be sad. You're gonna think you're terrible at what you do. I mean, I was going through it recently. Like I'm editing a new film, and some days, like I just want to press the delete button on the whole thing. You know, like I just don't want to. I don't even want to look at a frame of it anymore. But you got it because it's yours. And, and and honestly, the only reason you have to is because if you don't, no one else will. Do you think that comes from being so close to it every day? Because you know how you can get sick of something, even if it's excellent, but it's just like you're facing it every day and it goes back to the same thing with the workplace. You're in the same place every day, so then stuff manifests. Oh, absolutely. I think it's all about, you know, I'm, I'm actually, it's so funny you say this because I'm very much going through this process that I'm struggling with right now. I mean, you film, that I've been making and I, I've, I wrote, directed, I shot it and I'm editing it. And a lot of that was out of just a financial necessity because when you're doing small, low budget films, there's just certain voids you, you may have to fill along the way. B is that's just the way I imagine making the movie. I, I think that was, it was kind of this mercurial process I saw and I said, I want to try this. And, uh, and again, it comes back to obsession. I'm obsessed and uh, control freak. And I think almost all filmmakers are control freaks. Actually, everyone I met, and I'm very messy in my life, but my <laughs> films is where I get to like be the control freak. Uh -huh. and, um, and going back to that, I think you get so close. I, I was so funny. I was talking to a friend today. He said, how are you doing on the edit? And I go, dude, I'm so deep in the woods. I don't even know which end I'm coming out on. And he was like, he was like, yeah, but you know this one day will, this will end and you're gonna come out on one side of the woods, so just keep going. And that's kind of, you know, the, uh, you know, it's like the Elizabeth Warren, uh, 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 what's her, 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 the Elizabeth Warren slogan, you know, uh, she persisted, you know? <laughs> and that's kind of the way filmmaking is, you just have to persist, you have to persist at every step of it. But yeah, it is very hard to be close and it's very hard to detach yourself from something that you really love, you know, and, and let it go in every edit is you letting go of, so, of something you love. And then it turns to you hating it. And then you're kind of in a crazy place. <laughs> well, with the Queen of Hollywood, how was that once you screened it? And then I, I think you have distribution for it, right? Yeah. So and then like the whole sort of sexiness of filming it is over, the editing part where maybe it's more traumatic and then now it's out in the world. What is that like, the good and the bad of that? Wow. Um, making Queen was one of the most, if not the most transformative experience I had as a human being. Um, there was a lot that went, of reasons why I made that film. I was going through some very personal, dark, um, situations around me and I basically was like I to understand this world I have to make a film at this point because I don't really know where else to go 
And then I made it, I shot it, you know, getting it, the whole process, every process is hard, right? Like you have no money, you're begging people for money. And the amazing thing is people help you. And that's one of the things, I, the first step I learned along the way, I guess to go through it is that people were there and really excited to be part of it from the get-go. And a small team formed and then a bigger team formed and then we were shooting and it was the most amazing experience ever. And then I edited that film for almost a year. I was so obsessed and so not sure of what it was. And I had another editor, Kelly McGillicuddy on it for a couple months and my, my producers, Matt and Jeff, they were also editors. So they'd come in and edit, like it was kind of this crazy process and we'd send it to festivals and we'd get rejected. And then a festival would say, no, we want you. Actually, we're not gonna take you. It's just a crazy, I mean, I have many stories. No one's, you know, you never know. And then at a party, I met, uh, Michael Rep, who runs Dark Star Pictures. And we just hit it off and I sent him the film. I mean, I went through every other channel in the world you're supposed to go through. And I met a guy at a party who was like, I dig this film, let's do it. And, yeah. you know, he worked really closely with me, distributed it, it came out in theaters, played a bunch of cool festivals. It, you know, and I don't think you're ever satisfied. You always think, you know, you're so obsessed that you're like, this is the greatest thing in the world. And it, it, it's great to you, but it, you know, there's a lot of films out there. There's a lot of art out there and you just have to let it be and you have to let it live and you have to let it find its own life. And that was a big experience I learned, but I loved it. I mean, there's nothing, you know, there's, there's honestly nothing more satisfying than being able to go on like Amazon and just type your film in and it comes up. And you know what? doesn't matter if one person sees it or one million people see it like that's your baby and it's out in the world and it's all worth it just just to let it to know that it lives and that it will live but it's a lot of work you know and it's it's not always that's the thing that it goes back to the la la land uh statement right it, it kind of keeps going back to that which is like that film tells us that like if you do work and you find success it will all be great not as great as you thought because you could have had this other, you gave up love, but it's still pretty great. And it's hard. The whole process is hard and, and it's difficult and it's alienating. But we, again, we do it because we're obsessed, crazy people and we feel we have a story to tell. And those stories are important that anyone who has them tells them. Sometimes the film just finds its place. So that was a statement I, I heard you say in an interview and I think just a second ago. Did the Queen of Hollywood Boulevard find the place you thought it would, or did people actually find something new about it that was fascinating to you that you're like, oh, okay, wow. It didn't find the place I thought it would, but they liked this about it. Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, I think you kind of have to go into every film shooting for the stars. You know, everyone wants to be in Sundance, everyone wants to be in South By, everyone wants to be in Cannes and Venice. And there's a million reasons why you might not get in there, but you don't get it. And then you got to see wh where does it, where can it live, you know? And I found that through a series of curators and programmers like Boston Underground Film Festival and Beyond Fest and a bunch of places, Mammoth and, and, and these places, which were the first places to accept it. Um, it started finding this really cool audience of, of real cinema lovers, you know, of you know, I didn't really see it when I made it as, even though it was based off all these 70s cult films I loved, I didn't see it as like a, a genre cult movie. Um, and that's where it started living and it started finding this really cool audience of people. And 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's so it's funny. So many things run through my head when you say that. Like to find its, I think it's still finding its place. I think it's in its release on online now, and it's on Shutter. It's on all these, you know, Shutter, which I love, and it's on Amazon. It's on Tubi. All these different uh, outlets for it. I think it's starting to find a cool core group of uh, followers that really like it, you know. And I'd really, I think it's really cool that. You know, maybe some films have a million people that like it. Maybe one film has a hundred people like it, but they love it, and it means a lot to me that they love it. And I get email like I, I got a few emails recently, just out of the blue, or Facebook messages from people, and they were like, "This film just like hit me. Like I don't know what it is, and I've never met these people in my life. I never had anyone reach out to me, so it's kind of a a surreal." a surreal experience, even on a small level, because the film didn't become a giant success, right? It didn't become, become a breakout hit that you may have, I don't know if I ever thought that's what it was gonna be, but that, you know, the opposite of what, what uh, the, 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 not the opposite, um, I'm trying to say it succinctly. I think it's still finding its, its core audience and the film is the film's audience is evolving all the time, and I think that's what I mean when a film finds its place and it finds its life. They're they're almost like living organisms. Movie they they go they work their way through a nervous system of content, of media, of, of technology now, and I think audience members are very smart at this moment, and they have a lot of options. And I'm very grateful that any audience member chooses to see my watch my film when they have tens of thousands of other ones. And the fact that it has started finding a core audience and finding an audience of people that have even reached out to me about the movie is really special. And yeah, it does go, the film, a film finds its place. You can't force it. I like that. And I think you also have talked about you want to make movies that create dialogue. So is it that you're okay if somebody doesn't like it? As long as it's creating some interesting conversation, because not everything even we put out, people get upset over the smallest thing, but I'm actually satisfied when it's creating a conversation. Yeah, I had a, a college professor, they used to say that making art was uh, to incite discourse. And I truly think that's all that kind of matters in the end of the day. Um, you know, good or bad, that's your Chinese dinner, you know? Was the food good? Was the food bad? <laughs> films are much more complicated that, than that. Even films that don't seem, seem to be that way. All art is. All art is asking you to just go dig a little deeper. So nothing makes me happier than, watch, than hearing or seeing people talk about my film. I don't care if you hate it. The worst thing I could do is be mediocre. I could do, and I think any filmmaker or artist could do, is be mediocre. And we die in mediocrity. And I think right now in this crazy content laden world that we're in, I think our biggest enemy as artists is mediocrity. And that's my goal as a, as a filmmaker. I don't necessarily think I make great movies. Uh, I don't, some people hate them and I'm okay with that. Cause I just want, if you're going to talk about it, if it's going to bring up conversation, if it's something that in any way incites you to discuss Anything, I'm happy. And that's just how I feel, you know? Did you see the documentary on um, Chris Burden? 
He was the artist. That oh, the artist that. who shot it. I've never seen him, but I know his art. He did the yeah. LACMA lamps. Yeah. And he got shot in the arm and he made the train set over there. Right. Well, I think part that was part of his uh, art thing was to do the shooting. I yeah. Think. When he yeah. got, yeah, yeah. He had them film him shooting it, getting shot in the arm. Right. Right. Yeah. I love that. See, I love performance artists and, and I love that type of art. And I don't think I'm that shocking in any way. I'm not like Gaspar <laughs> Noe or someone like that, but. Even though those are my, I love those filmmakers, John Waters and Gaspar Noe, real transgressive cinema, you know, that pushed us, Harmony Corinne. But I think, yeah, an artist like Chris Burden um, is just like that. You know, recently at the Venice Biennale, I, this artist whose name I can't remember, he brought to this Venice Biennale and put it in a museum, in an art gallery, a boat that migrants died on. Oh, wow. On their way to Greece, I believe. And he put it in the, in the gallery. And a lot of people were like, you know, that's exploitative, that's whatever. I go, well, you're gonna talk about it. So you can say whatever you want about, about the artist, but he did his job. His job is done now. Now it's your responsibility as critics, as audience, to go discuss it and you figure it out. So, yeah. Well, in a, in a day and age when people are getting arrested for helping people in the desert and giving them water, you know, that are trying to whatever your feelings are, they're still there and they're th whatever. And, and now people are being surveilled oh, for, yeah. for helping I mean, people. So that's an interesting statement. Yeah. Uh, totally. It's a giant statement that he's making. And I believe we are living in a very polarizing time of like, on one hand, you do have, like you're saying, like the surveillance state and the and third world living is going into the worst it's ever been. The, the discrepancy between rich and poor is terrible. And there's all these, and these are all things that without knowing it, people are analyzing in film. You know, in a horror movie that is about clowns killing homeless people, it might actually be, it might actually have some subtext to this idea of, of politics. So that's like my point about film. I just think we, we deserve to the filmmakers to just look a little further into what they're doing sometimes. I know Chris Burton, he faced a lot of backlash, not just from uh, non, just not for, not just from patrons, but from the art world, and I think he, he you know, he, he became quite upset and isolated himself a little bit. But it also drove him further into his work. So you know, that's that's the thing. Do you become so um, I don't know if avant garde is the right word, but successful at creating this conversation? But then it creates that. That's the part I hate to see in artists that it, it shuns them. It makes them shun the world. You know. Well, I think people forget how sensitive artists are. You know, and I'm not apologizing for artists because as an artist, you get to live the greatest life, you know, the blessed life, you know, you get to create and that's a beautiful thing. And I think, but there's a certain yin, yin, yin and yang to that. And yeah. artists are very sensitive and they take their work very serious, I think a lot. And now in the day of Twitter and, and social media, everyone's a critic, right? And even more than that with Chris Burden, where people really, uh, ostracized him, but at the same time, that became his legacy. He became a legend because of that, you know? So who knows what the, you know, in, in the end, it's, it's, it, it, it kind of goes back to the idea of like a film finds its place, like art finds its place as well. And whether that's good or bad to people is, is kind of hard to judge, you know? Look at how many great, I mean, it's gonna get dark for a second, but look how many great artists have killed themselves, right? People who you thought were on top of the world. And, and, and they, they, you know, because we don't, we never know about someone's inner monologue. So that, again, it just comes back with art and with film and with media. And I think one of the things I, as a filmmaker, hope to do just a little bit is just ask an audience to be like, 
just talk about it. Just discuss it. Just, just spend, know that like these stories are for you and we love that you enjoy them and we love for you to discuss them. Is being a filmmaker an artist or I know you had, you said it's, it's kind of two worlds. Well, I think that, I think it's really interesting in today's world. Like, yeah, I think all filmmakers are artists. But I think it's also what's amazing about film is it's so technology driven that you also have to be a technician and you have to understand the format, understand the medium and understand the complexities of all the layers of making a movie. You know, it's kind of, you know, what, why, you know, it's only been around a hundred years and it's the synthesis of photography and painting and novel writing and sound and music. So that's why I've always been attracted to it. It's kind of taking everything I'm attracted to and I love and being able to like jumble it all together and find a certain type of balance between all these art forms. So I think a filmmaker is, is definitely an artist, but you know, you're also a businessman, you're also a technician, you're also an audience member. You're, you have to play all these parts along the way. And I think a, a fear, it's something that I got caught in for a long time and it almost came with making a movie and trying and failing and trying and failing was being like, I just have an artistic vision. I have to stick to my artistic vision and all that. But it, it, it's not just about you. It's about a whole, just a hundred, you know, even on a small film, there's 40 people that go into making the movie. So I think it's about also knowing that there's a lot of opinions, and a lot of other people that it, it, a, a film is bigger than you as an artist when you start making it. It takes a lot on a life of its own again. And so I think you need to find a balance as a filmmaker, not only as an artist, but also as a technician. Also, when you're the lucky enough to be the director, someone who also can guide uh, all the other departments and listen to the other departments on the, because they uh, and to the department heads and all your other crew members and everyone because they also have opinions and they're also personally invested in your film. So I think in a way, a film is a collection of artists, even if they don't mean to be coming together to create this story and bring it to life. You also said to be an attorney that you didn't think that you didn't, can you just touch on that? Just uh, when, when did you discover that? And, and Oh, I mean, filmmaking and contracts, like trying to get your film made and having to make a, a deal with contracts seem to go hand in hand, right? Like you have to, you know, at all times, everyone's trying to protect themselves. You're dealing with any amount of money is still money and you have to protect the person who's giving you the money, you have to protect the film from the money. You have to make sure that you know everything's reasonable. So you and, and lawyers are very expensive. So it's a cost that at a point you you know have to take on a little bit of extra effort to learn the business of films and the law and the law and what you can and can't do and and understand what you're getting yourself into. Because in the end, every film is also a, a company. It's a little limited liability corporation, an LLC, each one. So you have to know that there's other factors involved that just go beyond like, I have a story to tell. Right. You know, you, it's business as well. And it's not, again, it's not something, you, you know, it's not gonna become a millionaire overnight, but you still have investments, you still have actors that are, they have to be protected. And you have to make, you know, they, they have, they're putting themselves out there. So they have clauses in their contracts and you have to understand their clauses so that you also don't infringe upon them when you're filming. Um, so yeah, I think, and then every step of the way, when you're raising the money, making the deals with actors, closing the deals, 
with your department heads, um, distributing the movie. You're dealing with contracts in every single facet. And if your film's big enough and you're the director, I'm, I'm sure you don't have to deal with them. But on these small budget films, which uh, we, some, I got, I've been able to do and I love doing, you, you have to take a little extra interest into the legal side of it. So yeah, I mean, it just, We've all read and heard the horror stories of you know people getting sued, people losing the rights to their film. It just happened to, Taren, to Terry Gilliam last year on uh, on the Don Quixote film. You know he lost the rights to the movie to a producer because they didn't realize there was a loophole in the contract, oh. and he, that was his baby. You know he he actually I believe had a heart attack from it at a, uh, he, at, at a, when it first happened. Oh my goodness! So. You know, and that's a big film. So the thing on these little films, it, it's hard. It's it's a it's a crazy business. What do you think story is going? We talked a little bit earlier about you know this sort of crazy political world that we're in. Gen Xers like me, we weren't thinking about like really facial recognition and things that you know are, are very real things that are going to be happening. They're already happening. What if somebody's face is on a now now a database and they're wrongly accused and now their their life's totally changed. So, but those weren't things we were totally thinking about. Maybe just they dabbled in some sci-fi. Well, I think, you know, I think there's a lot of, I mean, one of the beautiful things I find about film is the way that film has uh, continually prophesized the future uh, in sci-fi, in mystery, in noir, in all these facets. But I think right now, I guess in story, I'm actually, what I've been seeing is a really amazing, um, Reimagining of the structure of film and of storytelling. I think even in the last six months, I've started seeing movies being presented in a more commercial way that are actually pretty advanced story-wise. A lot of Chinese cinema is really pushing storytelling um, structurally, and there's this film Long Day's Journey Into Night, which was one of the, really pushed the idea of how to tell a story. I think in a whole new way. And I think if we get into how it's affecting, I mean, right now in film, we, I, we're, we're entering almost like a, 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 a no man's zone of what's next, right? Like it goes back to what you're saying about AI, facial recognition, but people were dealing with that from the 50s. You know, they were looking at the possibilities of the future. 2001, A Space Odyssey was dealing with AI. You know, there, so we, we've always looked to film to help us understand the future. And I think anybody who makes a film has to be a little bit of a futurist because your film's coming out a, at least a year later, if not two to three years after you've made it. So you're always having to look to the future a little bit in each movie. But I think storytelling, I think film itself is, is a very uh, r rudimentary, uh, language that's in its still in its like primitive stage and i think what we're starting starting to see now is people exploring it in all new ways than ever before because a film doesn't just live in a movie theater for 90 minutes now it lives on your phone it lives in segments it lives in music videos like film is a whole new term i think but in the idea of how do i think that filmmakers are attacking or kind of uh, taking on the idea of the future. I, uh, I think in the same way they always have. They always looked, I think that's what I love about film. They've always looked to the future 
to help us as audiences understand what may come. And sadly, sometimes they're right. And that's the scary thing, right? Is like, there's a lot of films that are looking a lot more realistic than when they were made, you know? Um, even, you know, you even look at, uh, at a big, like, uh, what was the big, the Roland Emmerich movie about climate change he did in night 2002, 2003. Uh, well, not uh, Inconvenient Truth. Dennis Quaid. No, oh, that was Al Gore. Yeah, no, no, Al Gore just was giving us a reality that <laughs> right. no one listened to. Right, right, but that's true. Look at all these films that we're dealing with, you know, Mad Max, all these movies that we took as kind of these popcorn flicks, even though they were always better than that. Um, are very much coming true right now. And I think they're gonna come true a lot faster than anyone realized. And I think as filmmakers now, we're having to look at the reality that's next is a very scary one. And I think that's why you're seeing this, these films like Us, you know, these movies that are, are dark but resonating on a very large global scale. So, yeah. And here Philip K. Dick was writing in his little hovel. I think he preferred to write like where it was real dirty and messy. A lot of what he wrote, unfortunately, has already sort of taken place, but you know, and, and struggled and I think had to go to a pet store to get his meat, you know, and that, that's where he. Absolutely, and he, he was a pretty, you know, reclusive dude, Philip K. Dick, but look, a scanner darkly. I mean, we're not far from that. We're not, we're, we're at a point where one of the biggest, uh, there was an article that came out today that said, the three biggest threats to humankind is climate change, nuclear war, and AI. And Phil K. Dick was dealing with AI in the 60s, right. um, as was Ray Bradbury, as was a lot of those, those early science fiction writers. And it's interesting because, it, and it wasn't just science fiction in the end, right? A lot of people taking on political movies. You know, you look at like a Snowpiercer, which only came out a couple of years ago, which I just rewatched. And that doesn't seem as far away as it once did, you know, a world total where the climate outside is so sub-zero that they have to live on a train that's propelled by sm that small poor people. Right, right. Yeah, and then Philip K. Dick, he, he, well, I wouldn't say he was persecuted by any means, but he definitely got some scrutiny from all, all sides, including, including the government. But he also was, you know, sort of in the 60s in Berkeley at, at a time it was very, um, well, I don't want to get too political. Yeah, yeah. but I think <laughs> on the other side of the spectrum, because I don't want to, I mostly labor too much in this political darkness. And there's also great, uh, films is there for us to escape that as well. Sure. And I think we have to remember that there's two sides to filmmaking. It's not just to show us the harsh realities of today, but it's also for us to go get lost in another world and enjoy it and have fun living in that other world, you know? And that for me is a big part of it. A lot of days, you know, where I've been depressed or not felt, you know, necessarily up for it. I've gone at 3 p.m. to a movie and, you know, it's just, I've, I've gotten to just disappear for a little while. And I really relish those moments. And even if it's a terrible film, it's still that dark room, that movie, you know, and it goes back to the whole experience of watching films, but that, that movie theater experience, you're just in your world and it's just you and sound and images and story. No, nothing's better. So I really also, on the other hand, appreciate big, big budget films or big, uh, not even just escape the cinemas. I don't think that's fair, but I think it's really nice for us to get to indulge our other side where we can enjoy another world for a little while besides our own. 
Yeah, I always, if I'll go see a movie too sometimes in the afternoon and whether, even if it's like an art house, you know, theater and I'm hoping that there's going to be people in theater. Not, not too many obnoxious people that are on phones and talking and stuff, but enough where I feel like, okay, I'm not the only one and I'm gauging what they're, how they're reacting because it's not fun otherwise. No, the communal experience is Mm -hmm. awesome. I mean, that's a, and I guess we've talked about storytelling, but I think also in film we're going to, I think people are yearning for that communal experience. You know, I think. You can have your Netflix, you can have your, your Amazon and everything. But people love going to the movie theaters together. And they love yeah. watching other people watch movies. Right. That's the fun part to see. Do they laugh at the same part you do? Are they, you know, if the, that, that's the beauty of it. So I oh, like absolutely. that as well. What is the reality of distribution for independent filmmakers today? It's rough. <laughs> the reality of distribution for independent filmmakers is that you're you have to curb your expectations. There's only, there's so many movies out and there's only so many outlets for you to see them, for people to see them. And everyone, even distributors on your film are doing their best. Trust me, everyone wants people to pay that $10 on iTunes or stream that movie. And they're all doing their best to make that happen. So you think you have to be realistic um, during the distribution process. I think you have to be, Knowing that, I think you have to be very economical from the get-go, making your movies. I think you have to be very, you have to be super stringent and strict on your budgets and efficient and not spending, doing anything that's going to uh, hurt the, you know, you have to always take it, take in consideration the investment of your film. And in the end of the day, it's very hard to make your money back on these movies. And... So if you're kind of doing it, again, it goes back, if you're doing that to try to, you know, turn around a quick profit, it's just, that's not the reality anymore. The reality is it will get to exist and it'll get to be out there and, you know, your friends will get to see it and audiences will learn, maybe learn to love it. And that's the reward. But I think the distribution process is very difficult. At the same time, we're giving a lot more opportunity now. I mean, if you look at all the films that never, never available until now, it's amazing. You know, all these great, Revival DVD companies like uh, Severn Films and um, Arrow Video and all these companies that have come and taken films that for so long were unavailable to any of us or had bootlegs of VHS, you know, and they're re-releasing them. And, and that's really awesome. So I think now we, you're always going to be able to release your film, whether you, you know, whether you get a, a, the best distributor, you get an A24 or a Neon or, you know, you get a smaller uh more niche distributor or you can self-distribute and i think self-distribution is i've never done it and i've been lucky that my last two movies have both found distribution but at the same time why not explore it right like you, you can get one of these aggregators i think you pay them like 1800 you know there's different tiers you can pay them between like 1800 and $3, and they get you on all the platforms you know so i don't think there's any reason for your film to not get out there and I think at a point, you have to be very realistic as a filmmaker and producer, uh, especially if you're wearing both hats on, the, on a smaller movie, that you, someone's got to cut your losses and just get the movie out there and see where it lands. So I think that's the reality of it. You know, I think it's, it's tough because you're, it's so different now. It's not the 90s. You know, it's not like your film... You know, you have such a you have a better chance of getting to Harvard than you do of your film getting to Sundance, and you know Amazon coming and giving you three million dollars for your movie, and the people who get that is great, and they mostly deserve it because their films are really good. But there's a lot of really good films that 
people self-distribute, that small distributors take out. And I think as, as um, I think the other thing as a filmmaker that we're, we have to learn is we also have to be our own marketers. We have to understand marketing. We have to understand finding a, a niche audience and going after them through social media, through making little fun content around your film, trying to find a way to break it. Like you can't expect anyone else is going to do it for you. So I think even if you have a good distributor, so I think you really, as a filmmaker, have to really, you know, know that every step of this process, you're going to have to put your best foot forward. Um, but there's ways to do it. You know, it's just all of it's just about kind of being creative and and not getting down, like not letting yourself down. Oh, I didn't get that deal. I didn't get that. That, you know, this person didn't respond to my email. They don't like me. They don't like it. Like you can go put your film out for free. You can go put it on a website and say, hey, everyone pay a dollar. Here's your movie. You know, there's no rules anymore, which is beautiful. There's almost like an anarchy to film distribution. So it's kind of in your hands as the creator, which is a great thing as well. That's interesting you said that, the anarchy of film distribution, because I feel like in when Kickstarter started, everyone was just so excited and Indiegogo and all that, those those platforms. I think they've been around, what, 10 years now? Yeah. And so there was this initial excitement, but then some of the expectation maybe wasn't totally realistic, not within those platforms. Those platforms are excellent and, and I'm glad they're around. It's just once the movie's made, because I think it was like this giant bubble. And so I think that's a much more realistic, you kind of are at this like acceptance, like you just have to kind of see where your film's gonna find its place. And, and maybe that's a nice evolution to the 10 years of, okay, now that you know, infamous, you know, we take it from the gatekeepers and all you know, that people were using 10 years ago, but then what happens? Yeah, okay, there's no more gatekeepers, but now where does it land? And so I think that's very realistic. Absolutely, and Queen was a Kickstarter film. Oh, we okay. raised, we raised money off Kickstarter to finish the movie and we were very lucky. And I do think we were at an end of a bubble because I don't think I could do that now. I think it was very much a time and place where we were able to motivate and really see a lot of people that, I mean, people I never met giving good chunks of change to a film because, you know, it, it resonated with them somehow. And that was a nice way to build a small audience from the beginning. It was almost like a litmus test. Mm. But at the same time, you can't rely on that. I was just talking to a friend recently. She's trying to do an Indiegogo and she was just struggling with it. It wasn't finding its, its way. And I said, it's not your fault. It's like, you can't force these things to happen. You're asking a lot of people. So you just keep doing, working hard, doing the best you can and you don't use it. You don't let it get in the way of making your movie. But it's very hard. But yes, with distribution, I think it's the same thing now where you can almost choose your path. And if you're left with no more choices, you can do it yourself. You can just get it out there. There's no reason for your film not to be seen. You know, there's no reason for it to sit in a vault. What do you think there was a bubble? That's really interesting. Cause I, I kind of saw the same thing and those are amazing platforms. I go on there and I see their recommendations and I find ones that even aren't recommended. And I'm like, wow, this is fantastic. But it, it is harder to get uh, Well, I mean, I think that, you know, like anything, when it's new and fresh, it's new and fresh. And then everything kind of finds it has a cycle. And then a lot of other of these kind of uh, crowdfunding, crowdsourcing sites popped up along the way. And, and again, the, selling the market was oversaturated. So there was just too many people funding, trying to get their films made as well. I think there's been a real drop off. And I, I don't know the, the statistics of this statistics, 
But I think social media isn't it. I kind of think we saw this whole like equilibrium shift when it was like the, the, the mixture of like the Trump era, the the Trump era, the the social media kind of took this whole turn that where it became much more politicized and and we kind of had a Twitter president and then that also came to most of Kickstarter and these crowdfunding's bubbles were uh, crowdfunding source was social media. So I don't think people were maybe able to motivate so much the the social media aspect of it as they once were because I think we're all just overwhelmed I think we're just sick of people targeting us with ads with their asks with their you know their GoFundMes or whatever I think we're just we're burnt out so that's what I love I don't think it has anything to do with Kickstarter I think it just has to do with a a, a whole generation and a, a whole group of the world that's just burnt out on the internet a little on the same event that had this panel of uh, crime writers and they were fascinating and they were just talking about different things and they said the thing that fe they fear most because they you know they write about crime and some of their their descriptions are very gruesome what do they fear most their biggest fear was that the well is dry for ideas i thought that was really interesting the well is dry for ideas does I that mean, ever scare you yeah all the time i mean i think that that we all deal with trying to tell a unique story. But it's so funny, this actually just goes back, and I keep using people's quotes, but I was reading in an interview that Coppola, Francis Ford Coppola did last week, and he's 80 years old, he's trying to make a big movie. And they asked him, they said, what, what makes an artist as a filmmaker, like, what, as a, do you have any advice to young entrepreneurial filmmakers or artists? He goes, well, if you wanna be an entrepreneurial filmmaker, that's one thing. But he goes, if you wanna be an, art, uh, an artist as a filmmaker, you know, just start off with the one, with the one thesis, which is this. There's a one in a trillion chance that and that this zygote was created that created this a single individual, whether yourself or any of the other ten billion people on this earth. Understand that everyone has an extremely individual story, no matter who they are, and you can be an artist. And I think that goes back to the idea of the well. The well will never be dry because every story is individual. Every story is specific. And I think, you know, we, we just have, you just as a, as a filmmaker have to, have to go out and fight to find that story. It's not always going to come to you. But there's always a story. There's always an experience. There's always a history that someone or something has. And it's your responsibility as a storyteller to go find it and to manicure it and to help that it grow as if it was a flower or a garden until it finally, you know, comes to fruition. So which would you say you want to be, an artist or an entrepreneur filmmaker, entrepreneurial filmmaker? Because it, it seems like you almost, the, art, the days of the artist, it's almost like you almost can't just be that. I mean, I'd love to just be an artist walking around with a camera and making it, but you know, we all have to pay rent. But in the end, like, I don't know. I've never thought of myself as trying to be like an entrepreneur and trying to, you know, reinvent the wheel. I just want to tell stories and I hope that those stories resonate with some people. And if along the way you happen to be successful in business, that's amazing. Um, I, I, we all want it. We all want a, com a more comfortable life than we have at the moment. I don't think anyone I think even the richest people are always looking to 
make their life more comfortable, make their life better, whatever those reasons are. But I just, I, I like, you know, I, I think like Queen and uh, the other two films, you know, I, I like, I think I, I, I have a predilection. I like focusing on people who don't necessarily have their stories told. Not as if like, you know, I'm not gonna go to the homeless guy on the street and be like, I'm gonna tell your story. It, it, maybe one day, but I'm, I'm just saying it's not, it's not saying it has to be extremes all the time. Um, but I like the person, you know, I like telling stories about people that in their small worlds and showing that everyone's world is really important to them. And everyone has their own individual, uh, their in individual evolution. So I don't know, I guess I, I want to be an artist. I, I, I guess I'd, I'd love to be sure myself an artist, but I think, you know, it's a business and we're all doing, you know, we all, we all got to do business as well. How do you start a screenplay? I mean, since you, since you love characters that maybe aren't mainstream and I'm the same way, I don't resonate with a lot of like chick flicks. And it's not that, it, it's to me, I just, I can't identify with, it's too perfect for me. And I don't, I, I find myself getting squeamish. Yeah. I like something a little, a little more, some edges around it. Yeah, I mean, I like broken people because I feel like one as well. <laughs> yeah, a lot. I, 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 I like people who are conflicted. Um, it's so weird. Like, how does screenplay all different ways? I, I can't tell you. The, the the biggest part of the process, you, it, 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 it's the dumbest in the world. But the empty page is the scariest thing in the world. So it's just like the way I start writing is like I say. I'm a photographer as well, so most of my films that I've written are um, based off of an image maybe that I've taken. Hmm. That's kind of where I start a lot is someone that I've captured through an image. Even if the image really has, ends up having nothing to do with the story, it's kind of like there's an image burned into my head and I start with that and I allow that to take its evolution. I'm a pretty sloppy writer in that I just start writing and I let the story and the, char the characters guide me because I, I mainly write uh, films that are seen by a singular POV of the main character. So because of that, I kind of follow that character and I learn about them. And as I learn about them, a plot evolves. But that's kind of how I start on a film I'm writing it from the beginning is I, I mostly comes from an image and then that image is mostly gives me an idea for a character and then I follow that character and then the world starts to build and then I rewrite a lot. Um, you know, sometimes it will come, you know, someone goes, hey, I might, you know, have some money to make a movie. I have a small idea. What do you think? And that idea becomes a giant kernel uh, or becomes a kernel that pops and suddenly you run with that idea because there's a real possibility of making it and you make it your own. I mean, that's a big thing I've learned also about filmmaking is you gotta be able to sometimes make someone else's idea your own. And that's a really interesting process as well in its own right. But for writing with me, it's, it's the image comes first and then the character and then I follow that character and I find a world and I find a plot within that character's world and I go on the ride and I try to be the first audience member and enjoy that process. Um, I like to write fast. I don't like, I'm, I've never, and, and I mean, this could be also to my own detriment, but I, I don't spend a lot of time on a screenplay. I try to just write fast, get it out, push it out there, and then then go through the, start going through the rewriting process. I show it to a group of people um, that I trust or 
you know, or attached somehow to the project. But mainly, you know, you find yourself, you always need a good sounding board and it's one of the most important elements of the writing process and of every, of every process of the film is having people that you can go, what do you think? Because like, I'm lost. And, you know, kind of finding that nature of, of uh, people that can give you notes and give you ideas and tell you when you're right or wrong or too stuck, so. With Queen, was there an image? I know you said you were in a, a conflicted place and you had to get it out, but was there an image? Yeah, there was a photo of a woman on Western Avenue wearing a leopard skin pro coat that I took uh, out of the side of a car. Wow. And the film started with an idea of a woman in a leopard skin coat. And was she waiting for a bus? Like, what was she doing? I'm not sure what she was doing. It was probably not good. Okay. She looked like she looked like she, she, she had better over. days. Okay, okay, yeah. right, right. It, it was cool, but I, I know the image. I can see it in my head right now, and it's actually funny enough. Now next, where I took the image was in front of a church, which is now next door to my office, where I write and edit and stuff. So, oh wow! Years later, but yeah, how that, ironic! That's so really ironic. interesting. Yeah. So that, I that just, is actually really interesting. Yeah, it, it is thinking about it, but yeah, I remember the the image, and from that image. But then, it, so it, that image just spurned this character, and then the character I pulled from my life, and sure. there's tons of real life situations and scenarios, and people, and then people I had, other photos I had taken, I took those, I wrote about those characters, and but um, and some of them changed on set, like you know everything. The whole writing process is such an evolution. But yeah, it really did come from a, a photo out of the side of a car. Wow. Western Avenue in Hollywood. On Western Avenue, yeah. The film that you're editing now, are you able to tell us the image that inspired it and what? what the yeah, film? it's called the, uh, the Five Rules of Success. And the image that inspired it was of a neighbor of mine who, on my block that I've lived in a long time in Hollywood, who has been in and out of prison a lot of his life. And he's actually in there right now. He's a really cool dude. Um, and it was a photo that I took of him on the street of him lifting his shirt up and he had a, uh, a like a Benjamin Franklin tattoo that he had just got on his stomach. And the film is about a guy who gets out of prison who basically follows this uh, self-made um, rule book on how to find success and to achieve his dream of opening a restaurant after prison. Wow. So yeah, it kind of came back to this photo I had taken of this guy with this $100 bill Benjamin Franklin tattoo who was a good friend of mine and was spending out of prison for a while. And how long did it take you to write the screenplay? This one happened really fast. Uh, this film was kind of a trip. I had written an idea for that, a very loose idea that I had never finished a couple of years ago. And then a really uh, close friend of mine and my producer and collaborator came to me and he was like, hey, I, you know, I was trying to make a new movie. We didn't know really what to do. He was like, I think we can, you know, make a movie. Do you have any ideas? I sent him some ideas. And then he told me, you know, I've had this idea of these like five rules that I've lived my life by. And could you, do you, does this inspire you in any way? And I said, absolutely it does. And in about three weeks, I wrote the script. And I just holed up. And three weeks wrote the first draft of the script. And it just kind of went nuts. And it was the mixture of this story that I had written about my neighbor with the, with the photo I'd taken of him with the Benjamin Franklin to um, 
to we shot the film. I wrote the script in the script. The first draft was finished in November. We started shooting the film in January. So it happened really fast and it was just kind of this like race the whole time. Um, so it was really cool. But yeah, I just kind of like came out of me and, and the way the script was written was it to kind of be mercurial and change. So in the edit, it's been a lot of rewriting. It's been a really kind of uh, fun but tumultuous process, the editing of the film. But yeah, the screenplay just like came out. It was a really cool experience to, I never made a movie this fast, so. Is the neighbor in the film? No, he's in prison still. He's still there, okay. Yeah, he's, he's, uh, he's, he's still there. I think he gets out in two years. That's but um, I did speak to him that long ago, but no, but we did uh, shoot in prison of, just for a small portion of it and stuff. And where he is? No, not where oh, he is. Oh, I was gonna say, yeah, one. how'd you get acting? How'd no, no, you a get one. Oh, okay. I was actually really bummed out. I thought the location when we went to see it was an active prison, but it wasn't. Oh. <laughs> but um, yeah, we filmed up in Mira Loma State, uh, the detention facility, a detention facility up in uh, Lancaster. But yeah, so it's just kind of this, you know, it's very much to me, it's this film is my a little bit of my reaction to how you, you society gives you no tools to. Uh, really navigate it. And I use the metaphor of someone who gets out, gets out of prison almost like a blank slate. And at the same time that he's trying to achieve something and really putting his best foot forward, society is constantly pushing back at him. Sure, sure. Yeah, I can have a lot to say on that. Yeah. I, I... Yeah. Why do you think the screenplay came so fast to you? Because it goes back to the obsession. It's like, it just lit a fire in me. Like I just, A, the possibility of making a movie, like it's so hard to get any money. So the idea that there was like a real like pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. Um, maybe in this case it wasn't gold, maybe it was more like bronze or steel <laughs> or who knows, some sort of more, less luxury metal. And, um, and um, Titanium. Yeah, yeah. titanium, <laughs> I, I can only hope. And, and it was just the idea sparked so many of my thoughts of society, so many of my thoughts of characters. And I got to just really have fun because I was a very, there was no one telling me really how to do it. So I was like, okay, I'm just going to like be super creative, have fun, write, and know that there's an actually, and, and also I, I had set up rules like from the get-go of, of the film and of the world because we were already constrained from, by a budget from the day I started writing. So I could, it could never get out of hand. It could never, you know, there could never be, here's the $5 million version. Here's the, you know, $50,000 version. There was only the lower budget version of the movie. So, you know, I had, I, that confined me to a certain type of uh, format and world that I got to examine. So it was, uh, I think that's why it came out so fast. It was almost like there were rules set in place already from the get-go and I had to follow them and that allowed me to really just push forward through the script. And so did you just limit the locations? I know you said it was, there's some in the Miraloma prison, but did you have some at an apartment or something? Yeah, it mostly takes place. I shot half the film in my office, um, which we just redesigned as his apartment. It's basically most of the film is in a uh, apartment, a Armenian Greek restaurant, and just streets of Los Angeles. And that's kind of where it was at, you know? And um, I always, you know, everything I've made has kind of had a, uh, I've, another obsession was just like Los Angeles as a whole. It goes back to La Land. The city is just like so schizophrenic. I love it. There's just so <laughs> many different pockets, different enclaves, different neighborhoods and worlds that you get to walk through. So yeah. I kind of wanted to show that in the movie. Um, 
I probably could have done myself a favor and limited the locations more, uh, which is definitely more has been a learning lesson in each film, which is to be more efficient than I was the film before. And if I am lucky enough to make another film, I'll try to be more efficient. Mm -hmm. But yeah, so it was about, you know, writing it with those parameters and limiting the locations and, you know, limiting the amount of characters. I said, you know, all problems can only be solved between these three or four characters. There can't be characters outside of it that come and suddenly the story goes off with, you know? And when the film is finished and it's out there, um, what do you want the conversation to be? Or, or, or you don't have, you're not tied to what it will be? I have the reasons I made it and the things that I want to talk about, but I, I, don't, I, I don't care what anyone else talks about as long as they talk about it. You know, I, I, I don't want to force their hand. Um, I don't think it's my place to tell them this is what the film is about. Yeah, I don't want to explain it to them. I, I think it's the coolest thing is getting to, to watch something and come up to your own idea of what it's about. I mean, you know, I, I love films. You know, I love like Nicholas Reffin. Only God forgives, right? Who the hell knows what that movie's about? I don't know. He never tells you what it's about. The film is kind of a little uh, vague, but I've had so many great conversations with people. I have so many different ideas of what that movie is about. Um, and there's a lot of great films that that allow us to you kind of get to imagine as audience members what they're trying to say without hitting us over the head all the time with it. So I don't know. I, I hope people talk about society. I hope they talk about the prison industrial complex and how it takes advantage of, of, uh, of really, you know, hardworking, good members of society and turns them into criminals and, you know, doesn't give them the, the proper tools necessary. And I also think it's about your own personal agency and the idea that you make your decisions and they're your decisions. There's no one else's decisions. You know, we have, we are very lucky to be able to have a choice. Yeah, but I, I think it's interesting what you said, I think, um, about um, different not having tools, you know? Not everybody grows up um, with the same, you know, sort of, uh, it's not a level playing field. And that's not to hate on one group for having more or having had, you know, I, I grew up without two parents, I had just one. And so, and I know I grew up in a very conservative town where seeing other kids that did have more, it was, it, it did do a number on me a little bit. And so then when you're an adult, then, okay, how do you take those feelings and not turn them against yourself, turn them against other people, even if they've done you wrong and sort of contain some of that. So I, I think it's interesting because I think a lot of people in their little safe middle-class bubble, they don't understand some of that. And you make them, you almost make them a, uh, you know, I think a big part of what I was trying to take from this film is taking a guy that almost had the 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 the, the deck stacked against him and making that almost like a superpower, giving that or making that his his experience and his you know um, the quality of life that he had lived almost gave him an edge over other people, and that's kind of where I was taking this character. You know, it made him a little sharper, made him a little harder, made him a little more. Um, detached from emotions in the decision making. So in a way to me, you know, those, those, what the world had taken from him, he uses as his, as his best tool, as his greatest tool. How did he get that superpower? That's interesting. I mean, because I think that it just came from, you know, um, a certain amount of self-reflection and, and uh, intelligence and, 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 
an understanding of, you know, in this film, I think it's a, a person, that's why I wanted him to kind of create this guide for him to live by because he saw that he had an experience that other people didn't have and that was going to separate him. And that's not, doesn't, that doesn't make it always have to be bad. You know, your experience, whether other people deem it right, good or bad, doesn't mean it has to be bad. Knowing that you love these sort of characters with edges, how do you make them still redeemable, likable in some way? Maybe they're not even likable, but somehow that the audience is not going to give up on them. Because they're humans. They're just like you and me. That's the point. It's like, if you can just get the point across that like these people all, they all sleep, they all eat, you know, they, they all breathe oxygen. Like if you can just get that little point across, I think we all relate to them. It, it's so silly, but I've always thought about, cause I do like these characters that are a little off, that are a little, um, you know, sometimes make, make, the, make the bad decision instead of the good decision. But I think if you also show them as they're humans, they struggle with so many of the same things we do. They struggle with how they're gonna pay their rent. They struggle with, did the parents love them? They struggle with all these very human factors. If you can just show them a little of that, I think we, we, we can't help but relate to them. Um, and that's, I, you know, so I try to show maybe people also, you know, s small details in their personal life, you know, show a lot of this new movie is a guy sitting by himself in a room eating and watching TV because we all sit in a room and eat, you know, we all sometimes sit by ourselves and watch TV. We all have trouble sleeping. You know, we all have nightmares, like we, these little things. So I think that's how you, you just humanize them through, through reality. Um, and also, you know, and, and I, I think even in a more surreal movie, you kind of take that approach where you, you know, you show that there's a certain humanity behind the bad decision-making, you know, behind the kind of like acting in bad faith type of uh, decisions. So that's it for me. It's just like, you know, if you can just, just get the point, just, just for a moment across, you can get away with whatever you want. You know, we, we, there's a lot of irreprehensible characters in cinema that I love. Bad Lieutenant, right? Oh yeah. Bad Lieutenant, Harvey, Harvey, Harvey Keitel yeah. is the great example of it. But in, and also, you know, in that film, but he, he tries to, at one point, he, he really feels like he's making the right decision. And you have to show that, you know? You show the human side to the character and I think we all will be willing to go for the ride if it's also entertaining, you know? That's a big part of it as well. Yeah, and I'd love to see more female characters like that because, it, it you know, uh, Margaret Atwood has a great quote and she said that, you know, women are either painted as either just total angels or just horrible human beings, but they're human and so there's a, there's a spectrum, you know, whereas I think it feels like sometimes men can have more of a gray area, but I, I wish they would show they don't have to have such clearly defined roles of, of, you know, either she's a bad character or she's great, but she can't be anything in between. Well, that was my goal with Queen. I wanted to literally take a character that we were so accustomed with, with James Bonds or Robert Mitchums or Steve McQueens or any of these great, you know, these male icons that we've had throughout the years and allow a woman to make those same mistakes, allow her to, to, to be able to live in that gray area that you're talking about. And that was really my goal was to take all these characters and say, why not let a woman be it? And you know what? I've had, you should have heard some of the irreprehensible things I've seen written on the internet about her, you know? And that's because people don't, it's unfamiliar. 
because we are in this world where we're so obsessed with the man and woman that, you know, women are a lot of times relegated to these, like either they're like these terrible evil, you know, the woman who's the psycho crazy woman that destroys everything. Right. Um, or she's the, uh, you know, angel love interest savior character. And there ain't no difference. We all, we're all trying to figure this life thing out together. Like why can't a woman make the same decisions that a man makes? You know, it's, crazy that that media has sold us this lie for so long so yeah so that queen like a hundred percent and i i hope i think i landed there i'm not sure if i did but i tried to let her live in this morally gray area and you know see how it see how it goes <laughs> and these were comments underneath the trailer or oh just indifferent comments in the trailer things i've heard people say to my face Things where people, you know, the friends that, that that just didn't even realize they were kind of saying something that was, you know, it's beyond not misogynistic. It's just d d unaware of, of what they were saying about a character. She's so hard, you know. Yeah. She's such she's such a bitch. Right. I go, really? Because like if James Bond did that, you wouldn't say that. You know, if 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 um, you know, when Ryan Gosling punches uh uh god my head just like the the one actress in the face and drive no one ever asked about it no one ever said you know it, it, but when if she does it you know if she slaps another person suddenly she's like evil suddenly she's cringeworthy and uh yeah no we got a lot you know we've gotten a lot of great reviews but we had a few people that really like went on the misogynistic train on the film interesting yeah and good that's what i wanted I want them to show their face. Yeah. yeah, show your face. That's what you think. Say it. You know. Yeah, it's conversation. So then, there again, you can't control the outcome of the film, and it's it's it lands where it lands. You know. Yeah. What makes a protagonist or a hero great? I think what makes a protagonist or a hero great is that they make bad decisions and good decisions. I think we need. I think what. You even have seen in the recent, I think what re really resonated to people about the Marvel Cinematic Universe over the last 10 years, and I use that as like, you know, those are the biggest protagonists in the world that we've ever had, is that they were all flawed. And I think that's why so many people related to them around the world uh, with these characters. And they weren't perfect characters. And I think, so that's from the top down, right? So I think in a protagonist, it's showing that there's flaws, there's chinks in the armor, and everyone puts up the front that everything's okay and that they're strong and that they're confident, but they all struggle with their own inner monologues and their own weaknesses. So I think it's, you know, it's really showing um, kind of a, the, the faults in the, in the follies of those characters and that they also make bad decisions. But I think what's great about it, what really makes a great character and protagonist is showing that they have a, also a, a code, a, a, moral, a moral compass. I think that's really important. Even to bad, even to when your character is an antagonist, they got to have a code or a moral compass. Characters without any, just who, who wants to watch that? Do you remember the first film that you saw that that had a a challenged protagonist that that, that was flawed, but you you resonated with? And I think it was the first Batman with Michael Keaton. I think I always kind of like understood because he was such like an arrogant, you know, kind of <laughs> you know elitist guy but he had so much of his own demons that he was struggling with that movie really resonated with me 
as a kid. Um, I don't know, I always think of Bat the first Batman was like a very influential movie when I was, you know, eight, nine years old. Mm. Beyond that, um, I don't know, I've always, I, fought, I fell in love so much with flawed protagonists along the way. I mean, like Taxi Driver changed my life. Like that film is my favorite movie, I love it. And, you know, Travis Bickle is a really interesting character because he so believes he's right and everyone else is wrong that he ends up committing a, basically a heinous act of violence but becomes rewarded for it. And I think that's so interesting to me about him is like, he was right. You, he might seem psychotic and crazy to you and because we've been able to live with him for two and a half hours, but to the rest of the world, he's a hero. So I love those characters, you know? So that was probably the most major influential one on anything I've ever tried to make. Did you see the movie Smooth Talk with Laura Dern? No. And Treat I, Williams? Yeah. No, but I love both those actors. <laughs> oh, you got to see it. So she's, she's a, oh, it's probably not totally PC, but I love that film. And I thought, you know, she was not totally flawed, but she, you know, was pushing the envelope a little and she was challenged in some ways. I don't want to give away. You no, know, I'll check you it gotta out. You got to check it what out. What was it made? Mm, I want to say 80s. Awesome. Yeah, it's it's really good. It's definitely not a totally PC movie, but um, I'm okay with that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> What's your advice to directors for shooting out of chronological order? I'm not sure if you had to do that much with the. No, the actually, it's so funny. So my first, um, I, I I was very lucky in my film Trespassers, the horror film I made, which comes out this summer. Um, it's a contained thriller. It only takes place in one house in and in the desert. And I got to shoot almost 90% of the film in chronological order. That was a treat. On the other hand, I've made my two other films. They've both been out of chronological order. So it's a very hard, it, it was something that I didn't realize how hard it was gonna be until I sat in the editing room after making Queen, my first film. And I looked at all the mistakes I had made because it's very hard to gauge an actor's performance from one scene to the next. If you're shooting the first part of that scene that Monday, and then you shoot the next part of that scene two weeks from then. So, you know, you shoot them in the room that Monday, but then you shoot them in the car driving away from it two weeks later. And you have to somehow in your mind um, be able to go back to that scene and figure out where they were. So I found there's a few different methods that I even try to use throughout, at least, um, you know, now after going through that process, the first method was my second film, I got to shop, shoot mainly in chronological order, which was amazing. And that really makes life easier because you get to come up with things, you get to come up with new ideas, you get to rewrite as you go. Then in my the film I'm making right now, Five Rules of Success, I had to go back because of uh, financial situations into a more out of order block shooting situation. And I actually, one of the tools I used was on Halloween, John Carpenter had a meter that he would use for Jamie Lee Curtis, which was like her intensity meter since they were shooting out of order. So it'd be like, Hey, we're at this level in this scene. Okay. We got to go back to level five. I didn't have a meter, but on my script, when I went through beforehand and was prepping, I had basically given like different notes to myself on what intensity they would have to be during that scene. So when I would get the shot list of that day and have my sides, 
Uh, I would refer back to my script at like where they were supposed to be in that scene because what scene were they coming from? It's very hard though. I think shooting out of order is a super hard technical process and I definitely by no means have understood it or claimed to. Um, I, I'm still learning a lot with how to do it and I really wish I had the privilege of being able to shoot chronologically every time because it makes your life a lot easier. But it's just, you know, it's all about prep and it's just about fixing the prep. Know that when you're making, doing your pre-production, when you're doing your shot list, when you're doing your schedule, um, making notes to yourself that you can always refer to about where they're supposed to be talking with your actor, making sure that you're both on the same page beforehand, rehearsing, um, you know, making sure you're taking the time with the actor before. A lot of it also is like, and I guess this is something we haven't really talked about, but working with an actor is such a big part of this process. And, and it's really making sure everyone does their homework individually. And then we all come together and we're checking our homework and our notes together. So we're all in a similar place or at least willing to allow someone to be in a place that they want to be and creating that environment. So yeah, a big part of it is just like prep, rehearsing with the actor, giving notes, making sure you're kind of all on the same page with your notes, where you're at with the script, you know, breaking down the, if you kind of break down the beats, that's why I love doing a shot list. I don't even follow my shot list most of the time when I'm shooting, but I like it because it allows me to break down the beats of every scene. And if I know where the beats are, I know where I need to be. So I can go, hey, we did shoot this scene in your apartment three weeks ago, and now we're in the restaurant in the next scene. Remember, you're coming out of it, you're all upset, this just happened, this is where we were, you know, let's try to get back there. And um, also, your head, your, your costume designer and your wardrobe are really important in this process because they're mostly always are super on it about where, you know, continuity and where the actor is and what outfit they're in. So that outfit really can dictate to the actor a lot of where they need to be. So it's kind of you letting, using all the tools and people around you as well to help guide the process. So you make a shot list, but you don't really refer to it. You almost, it's like almost intuitively, it's like a, a blueprint already inside of you. Oh yeah, like I always have it with me on set, but I don't really look at it. But if you look at the shots, they're almost identical to what I write in the shot list. Uh, I just kind of, you know, use it as a process to break down beat by beat each scene in the film. And then once you get there, things change, you know? Things change, you wanna do something totally different. You see the scene, you're gonna go, let's just do this all in one shot, take. You know, there were scenes, I would have a ton of coverage for, and then I'd be like, I just want to do one take, and I'll, you know, I just want to do it as a one and we'll see where we land, and if it works, it works, you know? Um, it's just all about your own process, and you learn about it as you go. But yeah, I do the shot list, but I don't uh, storyboard, and I don't, you know, refer to each shot when I uh, start doing the scene. And in Queen, she has the leopard skin jacket, right? Yes. I think because I think she's in the leopard skin jacket. Yeah, in the, in, the, yeah. In, the, in the trailer. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Where'd you get the jacket, by the way? Oh, I got it off Etsy. Oh, nice. I, I, and crazy was I found two doubles of it from two different sellers. I found it about three days before shooting, maybe four days, so I had to have them rush delivered, and that was good because there's a lot of blood in the movie, so it allowed one me to have one blood jacket, one non-blood jacket. But like in Queen, I really struggled with some continuity issues because of my, uh, I hadn't made a lot of short films beforehand. So I kind of had an, you know, a little bit of an amateur um, awareness of continuity and of, you know, shooting out of chronological order. 
So it really is a huge leap then because people always say, oh, it's not, you know, if you've done a several shorts, it's just, you're just doing a longer version of it. It sounds like it's not the case. No, it's, it's, it's a whole other beast and it's not, I actually really respect people that can tell something really fast and succinct in three to five to 10 minutes in a short film. I've never been good at that. But no, make, you know, making a feature, is a, creating a whole world. You gotta build that world and then you gotta hide every single mistake you made in that whole process from the audience. So in the end of the day, they're not sitting there picking it apart, they're getting to go on the ride. Where did, where did you get the strip club from or did you, did you piece that together? Um, the exterior is, well, I, I, ha I, came, I had the name of it first, it was called Queen Mary's. Then I found out there was an exterior of a strip club in Portland, Oregon and we shot the exterior up there. And then the interior was in Glassville Park at this great place, uh, Los Candiles. And it was a really long process to find the strip club. I went to so many of them along the way. I have like all these great photos of just empty strip clubs in the middle of the day as location photos. <laughs> yeah, there's one that I've driven by in the valley. I won't say what it is, but they have the most interesting like advertising, like, hey guys, Easter special, you know? And then I mean, I'm like, somebody's really like, they must have like some social media person or whatever, because I'm actually like fascinated by their advertising. Hey, <laughs> they know how to get you, they're gonna yeah. get you, you know? Is there anything about filmmakers that bothers you? Like excuses in terms of when you hear people say they're trying to get funding and it's like their first feature and they're trying to make this huge film and they're using that as like this excuse and they're, they're waiting for it to happen when like, oh, just make this keep it smaller and then move on to that. I, I'm I think, I think the, the uh, it's something that bothers me. I just think, you know, when you're trying to make a movie, it, it's different because there's some movies you can't make for a, a small budget, right? Like it's, it's very hard to make films on a, on a little money and it's very hard to raise a lot of money. So you're kind of in this double-edged sword. But I, I think the one thing I find with filmmakers is when they get obsessed with the budget, and they get obsessed with reaching some number instead of being like, I gotta make this movie. How do I make this movie? How do I make this movie for $10,000? How do I make this movie for $10 million, you know? And if you can't make the movie for $10 million, maybe there's another film you can make for $10,000. And you should think about that. And I think it's just, that's if your goal is, it maybe, maybe all you wanna do is make that $10 million film. So that's fine to focus on it. I don't think there's any right way, you know, they're very different beasts to make. But I think we get very obsessed with budgets as filmmakers. And I think we need to, I think, you know, the, you can't let the budget constrain your creativity. Let the budget allow you to be more creative. Sometimes less money means you have to, you know, let's say, let's say necessity is the mother of invention, right? And that's how I feel about filmmaking is that if you got no money, figure out how to make it interesting for no money, you know? And I think that's the thing. Don't let, you know, don't let the number get in the way of you telling the story. At the same time, it, it's hard to make, get movies made and it's hard to get financing and no one's going to knock you if you can't figure it out. So it's kind of on you in the end of the day. Was it harder to make Queen or was it harder to get subsequent projects made? I've been really lucky. Honestly, I can't, I can't like, um, Queen was pretty, was, was the hardest one probably to make because, because I hadn't, I hadn't made anything. 
So it was like, there was no, there was no proof in the pudding yet. So I really had to just like me and, and my Matt and, and Jeff and Gracie and Alec and all the people that were like with me from the beginning, we just kind of had to like with tenacity as a group, really push this film into getting made um, because no one was going to give it to us. After that, after I got that made, I, you know, I got another film not long after that where people came to me that was already funded and, and that was really amazing. So I've, I've gotten lucky since then, honestly, and I feel very grateful for, for what I, the people that have taken chances on me. But the first one was definitely the hardest to get made. Were there moments when you weren't sure you wanted to make a second or that was never, that never entered your mind? I definitely, there was moments where I thought I never want to make a movie ever again. Uh, I think, I think about that almost every day. <laughs> this is, it's like, you know, it's like there's a little bit of a torment of doing this where it's, it, 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 every, you know, you're, it never feels like you're getting paid enough. It never feels like it's, it, it's, it's what you envisioned it to be. You know, you always, to me, like the, always the idea of what the film is and what the film becomes, it never, you know, it doesn't always equal the same, but it's just plugging away at it. You know, it, it, it's, it is what it is, but I never wanted to, I don't know what else I like to do. That's the problem. I just have no other idea what in the world I would do besides make movies. And if that got taken away with me, I would truly be uh, listless and, and not know where to go. So yeah, I definitely was like, I don't know if I want to make a second one. I don't know if I want to go through this process again. This sucks. But it's like, who am I to, to say that when it's, I get to make movies and have fun and I get to be on set with my friends and, you know, it's, we're really lucky to get to do this at least once. So. Do you keep up with the people that you went to film school with? Yeah, oh, I'm really close. Uh, some of my collaborators are people I went to film school with. My DP of Queen, Luke Hanlon, uh, we went to Emerson together. And uh, my composer, Daniel Delora, on, on both my films. Uh, and he gave me a song for my other movie. We went to college together. So, And then a lot of people in my class, uh, you know, it's kind of amazing to see a lot of people that I was very close with become really successful in film. It's it's cool. Like, I'm, I'm really excited to see people that I know achieve and evolve as filmmakers and artists and any facet of your creativity and see them, you know, getting accolades for it is really cool. Did you see them make um, a feature right out of school or, or continue to make more? Only one, only one group of friends made a feature outside of school and it actually did quite well. It went to South by it did well. And they, they've done two more since then. And they're writers on some great shows and, but yeah, I mean, you know, they all were just, but these were kids, you know, you saw it in school. You honestly, you'd see it in their work. They were all really talented people and their talent just evolved over time and they figured it out. So yeah, I'm still really close with a lot of people I went to school with. Yeah, I was just wondering, I mean, I didn't go to film school, um, but I was curious if most people end up making multiple features afterwards or they just work in the industry. They're, that, that, to them, that that's satisfying. They want to just be, you know, whatever it is somewhere within the industry, not making their own film. Well, I think we're all, all, a lot of our goal is to make our own film, but we all have to work. Like I'm not making a living off filmmaking all the time, which a lot of, I think they are as well, but they're all finding work in the industry that also allows them to maybe make a movie, make a TV show or something of that nature. And some people don't want to make movies. You know, they kind of get burnt out on it and they, they move on to doing something else. You know, I think it's, 
you know, I, you, you, again, you gotta be crazy to want to make movies. It is, it is a crazy uh, art form and you can get lucky and make a movie or you can go 20 years trying to get one movie made and it never gets made, you know? And, and maybe it does 20 years from now. You, you see these stories uh, recently with filmmakers, you know, like I wanted to make this film for 10, 15 years and I never made a movie. And then I made it and suddenly it's, at, you know, Sundance. So there's, there's no, I don't think there's a right uh, evolution for any filmmaker out there. That's true. When you say being crazy, do you think, have people tried to talk you out of this? Yeah, my whole life. My, I like, I know friend, you said your dad. My so, dad yeah. did, my friends have, uh, you know, girlfriends in the past have been like, you know, why you, why do you want to like be, be poor all the time? <laughs> but, uh, you, you know, um, and, and just friends. But, you know, at the same time, people, they've, I think a lot of people have also stood by me at times where it's been very difficult, you know, and helped support me in different ways. And you need a community behind you to do this and been really supportive when you're making the film, like in all different ways. Like that, that's the need of the magic of film is watching all these people, some of them that you never met before, coming together to help you. And it's not like, you know, at least on the films I'm making, they're not getting paid that much. They can definitely go somewhere else and get paid better. And they're all talented enough to do that. But they all kind of come together for a common goal. But yeah, and you know what? And there's haters out there. Like, you know, there's people that just don't want to see you do what you love or you succeed. And you just got to like, you know, just let that go one ear and out the other. It's not your problem. You know, you got to be steadfast in what you believe in this. So... Well, that's how we found you. Is someone someone tweeted it? I don't. It wasn't your. They included your Twitter handle. I think. I think it was Neil. Oh, okay. Was it? I think it was without your head. Oh, I think okay. it was that interview you told me um, when I did in Boston Underground with my friend Neil. He does a bunch of things. Yeah, that was a good one. Where you you were there with your mom. Yeah, I think yeah, it I like that Neil. one. It was great. Mm-hmm. I like that one. Yeah. But yeah, so someone else tweeted it, and I saw it. It came through our feed somehow, and then that's Love yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. But that's like, again, that goes back to like, you know, the network, like you got to just, it grows and people support you and you support each other and you never know who's going to find who or who's going to see what, you know, you got to have faith in the, in the audience and the network. And the algorithm too. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Was there anything else you entertained doing aside from making films or maybe you could make them on the weekends? No, I honestly have no like there was like I do photography and art and obviously like I work in like making content and stuff for different companies or whatever to make a living, but it's still all around the image making. Basically, I realized that I had no other career besides in the image making industry at a young age because I literally have no other skill in the world. Like I don't know what else I could do. I'm not very good with my hands. Like I don't think I could be like building bookshelves for a living or something like that. And I don't really have any other skill set besides making images. So I have no clue. I'd probably be like a delivery boy somewhere or maybe um, I, I really don't like I, it's so funny. Like I just I couldn't imagine going into a different industry besides making films and making photos and telling stories. Um, I'd love to teach. That's something that I really like would lo- want to do at a point because um, I really love talking about film and I love talking to other like, you know, helping in any way guide people in their experience with it. So that would be a real 
love, but no, I got to do this. It's like, it's kind of like this or like, you know, the grave. So. Did you ever have another job where you realized that? Um, I mean, I've worked, you know, odd jobs along the way, but honestly, from when I was about 17, I started working in an equipment rental house. Like I really like took like the, the first job I could get in the film industry. Um, even, you know, honestly having my dad who was in film and stuff, but I went a different route where I was like, I'm going to work in like the equipment rental house, unloading and loading cable and sandbags and lights. And that's where I started. And from that, you know, I knew that if nothing else, I was happy just doing that. Just being that close to the film world was amazing. So from there, you know, I got lucky. I got, I would PA'd. I remember uh, it was, it was really amazing. At one point, the, one of the uh, production companies that helped fund Queen um, and gave me, was really nice to give me some money towards it. I, when I first started off with them, I used to scrub their bathrooms and clip their hedges, you know? So like, you never know. And that's kind of another side of this is, um, for me it was, I, and my mom was really supportive about that. She was like, yo, you, you, you gotta support yourself. We're not wealthy, like you gotta figure it out, but don't take a job outside of the film industry. Hmm. And she, I think that was a really good point from her to give me. So it was like, yeah, I was doing laborious jobs, but they were always still in this industry and going through it and learned something in every facet or met someone in every facet that helped me. You know, when I was working at the equipment rental house, I used to get, make deals with them to allow me to use their equipment for free on the weekends to make music videos. And that's where I kind of started. So you never know, it's all opportunities, but I have no clue what else I would do if I couldn't be in this industry. And this was in New York, right? Yes, this was back in New York. So then you went to Emerson, and then once you graduated from Emerson, did you come to LA? I was in New York for a year, and then I came out here to work on a documentary. Oh. And then I, uh, I didn't ended up getting paid on that documentary, and I didn't have money to get back, so I ended up sleeping on Matt Berkowitz's couch, who was my best friend, who you also did an interview with. Oh wow! And I stayed on his couch for a long time. And his mom used to sometimes buy us groceries, you know, once a week. So we would live off like the frozen food she would buy us and started taking odd jobs. So yeah, after college, it kind of, that's how it happened. Wow. So I kind of ended up in LA. Yeah. So your plan was to go back, but then yeah. because the money didn't come through for Yeah, the money that's... didn't come through. And then my life just kind of started here, you know, and then life happened. What's the best screenwriting book you've ever read? I've never read a screenwriting book, but I've read a lot of screenplays. And that, it's so funny, I've never read a screenwriting book. I've tried and I just like, I can't relate to them, but I've read a ton of screenplays. Actually, since I was a kid, I read screenplays. There used to be this guy in Union Square in New York that would bootleg, sell bootleg, printed out copies of the screenplays. Um, oh, that's great. Yeah, and I remember buying the Goodfellas one and that was really influential on me when I was a kid and Taxi Driver. And um, uh, so it was just reading all of these screenplays over time. And uh, Cohn Blood Simple, Cohn Brothers screenplays were really uh, influential. And so that's what I learned from was reading a lot of screenplays, not really books on them and watching tons of movies, but yeah. So this guy, I'm sorry, I'm just fascinated, but did he have like a booth set up? Oh, he had like a whole table and it would have like, I could see it now, like all these like 
different screenplays that were brassed and bound. They have like these neon yellow or pink like highlighter colors on the front and these like bad printouts of the film. So it'd be like the bad VHS cover of like The Godfather. And then it would be the whole script though. It's basically somehow he got his hands on the script and he would have them Xerox. They were like terrible Xeroxes. They were like two or three bucks and I'd buy them. I had stacking them and I'd read them. And since I was a young age, that's kind of like how I got into it. And you said Goodfellas was the first one? or uh, Goodfellas is like the first one I really remember reading. Mm. Um, like from him and then from them. And I still have tons of screenwriting, uh, uh, screenplays that, you know, I still get. You know, I, I just was reading the, um, the Counselor screenplay by Cormac McCarthy, which is a film not many people love. The screenplay is absolutely phenomenal. It's actually it almost, you could see it as an example of a screenplay that is so good, it makes... It, it, it was too, almost too good to become a movie, you know, because it's so well written. Why? Do you think it because it doesn't, there's not enough showing? It, well, yeah, because it's all on the page. It, like so much of it's on the page in the screenplay. It's hard, and so much of it's like the inner monologue and the dialogue. You know, he's such a good novelist. Like the dialogue, when it gets spoken, doesn't have the same effect as when you read it in his screenplay. Mm. The way the dialogue just like sits with you and stings you and just comes out. But I love the film either way. But the uh, screenplay is really something. But yeah, I love reading screenplays. But yeah, I never really read like like Save the Cat or anything like that. Yeah, I just it, it's probably why my screenplays are all a little disjointed. Well, you know, it's funny. Maybe that's your next idea. Is the some guy that's in? You said Times Square or Union Square? Union Square. Oh, Union Square. Okay, time different. Yeah, yeah. sorry. <laughs> that's no, probably... Times Square would be amazing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm picturing a guy with like a trench coat that's he had got these necklaces here, you know. But I mean, it's pretty close to that. Like, it wasn't far from that. He was definitely like some like Haitian dude who was just like, hey, screenplay, screenplay, screenplay. Because like only in New York could that be that's some sort awesome. of side hustle. I love it. Oh, man. That's great. <laughs> Thank you. How did you digest it? And how do you feel that that was helpful for you? I, I didn't really, I don't think like deconstruct them. I just kind of they just sat with me and things that I, and what I loved about it, you know, like it, it was kind of like, the, it was just to kind of get an understanding of the language and an understanding of, of the format. And cause I loved most of the screenplays I read, I had seen the movies of. So it was kind of almost like, yeah, I guess it was de the screenplay itself is a deconstruction of the film. So it was almost like I got to go backwards and see where they started. And then I could fill in the blanks of how they ended up there. And I became really obsessed with like the lore of how films were made. Like I love reading Hollywood stories or production stories. So I think that became that kind of like fill in the gap area. But um, that's where I kind of, a lot of what I learned from was like watching movies and then reading the movies and then reading how the movies were made. Mm -hmm. And between that, I think I, I hopefully picked up a few things. Did you see Sunset Boulevard? Yeah, I love Sunset. Well, Queen is very much based off Sunset mm -hmm. Boulevard. Yeah, I love Sunset Boulevard. Yeah, I didn't find her character that, um horrible. I just felt it was a, it was a good representation of, you know, because she started, what, at 17? And she yeah. sort of... Gloria Swanson. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, love, I love the scenes where all the photos on the wall and everything are of her. And that that's her whole world is, is she is... Did nothing exist outside of that, you know, just... Yeah, then there's a great scene where she goes to the front gate of the studio, you know? And they're like, who are you? Like, we're not gonna let you in. And um, oh, Cecil B. DeMille is like, 
it's Gloria Swanson. You have to let her in. Like, you know, it's like, um, and it is amazing that film that shows that fall from grace. And it, it's such a great, interesting. And you know, they made that film. They, they were writing the screenplay as they were shooting it. Oh, wow. That They didn't go in with a full screenplay of that movie. Billy Wilder, and I can't remember who his co-writer was. So it was kind of amazing that that film has this very improvisational side that you would never realize in the way it was made. Because he's writing the screenplay, too, and sees her as, like, the meal ticket. But, yeah, it's very interesting. Yeah. And then uh, what's her, his name who plays her butler? Oh, he was fantastic. Yeah. Because he was her enabler. And he was his direct... She, he used to, I can't believe I'm forgetting his name right now. The Blue Angel. Max. You put it in the cry. Okay. Cry. Yeah. We'll <laughs> I'll remember it at some point. But uh, he was the uh, he was the director, and so he played her butler, right? Mm-hmm. And it was also you find out her husband, and in real life he had been, directed her in movies, and they had a very like kind of almost like abusive director actress relationship. So Billy Wilder was like almost like an inside joke for him to put him as the uh, as the subservient to her. Interesting, wow. Yeah. And he also sort of cleaned up everything. and then, Well, I don't want to give away too much, but yeah. with the letters and everything, just sort of... If you have not seen Sunset Boulevard, <laughs> stop this interview and go watch Sunset Boulevard. So I understand that CGI blood in horror films is one of your pet peeves? I do not like CGI blood. <laughs> I, I, I'm not going to lie, I have used some when I've had to, you know, mainly for cleanup. But I, uh, I hate when I see it film and it does not age well like if you watch a film that look maybe you thought looked really good six years ago and they did a bunch of fake cgi blood and you look at it now it just it does not look real there's no shine to it there's no i mean there's tons of shine to it there's no texture it all moves in that weird cg algorithm actually honestly i'm like i'm so over cgi at this point i can't tell you enough i watched the matrix the other day and that film stands up so well against any big budget blockbuster from today and you go watch like Avengers and I'm just, I'm so disappointed in the way it looks because it's all just in a green screen. Nothing's practical. Half the time they're not even wearing the outfits that they put on in the movie. And it just, it's very hard for me to lose myself in that world when it just doesn't have the same tangibility. You know, you even go back and look at early Highlander films and they're all matte paintings and these beautiful, you know, backdrops that are hand painted and you really feel that, you know, it's, it's, it's got such a fantastical sense to it, but it's still recognizable because it's not made by computer imagery. And so I really, I, I don't like CG that much in general, but I really don't like blood. I love practical effects and trespassers. We did some really cool practical effects, which people, you know, um, I, I think people will really dig. I mean, there's a couple violent gags that I'm like super proud of. And we cleaned it up a little bit digitally. It's an amazing, you know, you got to use the tools that we have to, 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 you know, I like, I don't think it's bad to use digital to, you know, uh, emphasize or add on or take away, but I just love the way practical blood really works. And um, I, uh, I love, you know, watching it get everywhere and people, I even love when you're making the film, it's on gets on everything, everyone's hands, everyone's clothes, everyone's like, I got blood on me. Like this is fun air that comes into the set because there's blood everywhere. Um, and, yeah, I like I like blood, but not 3D blood. <laughs> Any other pet peeves? Uh, pet peeves that I have. Um, in terms of how like films are made in, in recent years? Uh, when the, the, 
when actors are clearly not in the same room with each other and they try to fake it, trick us that they are, and it gets like really, I, that's really starting to bother me a lot lately. Um, but, and it's understandable. I mean, the, it's impossible to schedule all these giant stars together. But I just want to see them, um, you know, I, I just want to see, I, it's hard for me to get lost in those moments. Uh, obviously, I think that, you know, once you make the movie or two, you're kind of looking at it in a little different, a little more uh, cynical light watching other people's movies. Um, I love guns in movies, but I'm a little over the kind of like endless shootout uh, shootouts that go on in a lot of movies. I, I like the John Wick films and all that stuff, but it's just in today's uh, climate, I think it's a little irresponsible as filmmakers to make you know so much gun porn. Yeah. I don't mean that I'm someone that has used guns in every single film I've made, and I'm not saying I'm not a uh, I'm not flagrant of doing that as well, but it's something that I've at least started to think about as a filmmaker and has really stood out to me. Um, a big pet peeve I have, I hate scenes that just drive the plot. You know, I think plot, when I think a lot of times plot gets in the way of a good story. And that's something that bugs me a lot. And you see it a lot in kind of, uh, in this like new globalist cinema that we've entered where a lot of films are made for around the world. I think we try to push plot down people's throats where I think we're not giving enough credit to the global audience that they're actually like really smart and they want strong characters over big plots. Um, so that's a big thing to me. Yeah, those are kind of my pet peeves. I mean, you know, in China, everyone talks about, oh, they're making movies for China. Well, in China, a movie called Cap Capernaum, which was a really uh, small independent art house film that came out, I can't remember out of which country, um, made more money than Shazam there this year. And another film, Long Day's Journey Into Night, which I love, made more money than the first, than the last Avengers movie there. And these are very esoteric art house films. Mm. So I think we need to re-examine as Western filmmakers, the idea of like global audience and how we're trying to always push plot and I try to push simplicity down people's throats rather than allowing the audience to think for themselves. When you say that you've used guns in all of your films, how do you feel that um, going forward, maybe filmmakers should be more responsible? I think that, I think that we, we as a society, guns, we have a, a sickness in this country. And I think with, regarding guns, and I think we just need to show that they have effects. It doesn't mean you don't use them. It just means that they have consequences. And to be honest about the consequences of a gun, and I think that's all you have to do. You know, I don't think a con I think for a long time, guns and cinema were considered an, uh, a source of masculinity or strength. I don't see that as the case anymore. Um, I uh, also think you can be a lot more creative finding other great weapons in movies to hurt people with. So that's another fun thing. I think that people should be taking advantage of a gun's a very easy solution to, you know, a more maybe creative, fun, uh, action sequence than just, you know, someone shooting someone. You, you can really fi find another way to do that really well. I think you see that in a lot of Indonesian movies like The Raid or uh, Killers or Night Comes for Us and stuff. But yeah, I think we just have to remember as, uh, that we have, we are going to put something out that's going to be live out there and going to be seen by people and that violence and guns do have consequences. And we shouldn't take that lightly. We, we wield a certain type of power as filmmakers and we're lucky to do this and we shouldn't be 
that irresponsible. And if we want to be irresponsible, then we should own that irresponsibility. In it, you know, if you want to just make irreverent films and just kill everyone, that's great. That's what your film's going to be about, then. and that's that's cool. That's your that's what you're saying, you know. So yeah. Can you think of a film where it's irreverent, but there is a responsible? I don't want to say message. That gets a bad connotation, but a film that that shows something in a in a healthier light, an unhealthy situation in a more responsible light. Yeah, I mean, I think that like irreversible, right? A film that. Um, has one of the most like intense, violent, what some people say gratuitous scenes uh, people have ever seen. I think it does a lot to talk about the conversation and I think it's, it's, it's not, the, the Gaspar Noe is no dummy. And I think you have to remember that when you watch a film like that and you have to be willing to discuss what it's talking about. I think it's very okay to bring a reverent subject matter to light. I think people need that. I don't believe in, in uh, political correctness, and I don't believe in censorship whatsoever. So yeah, I, but I do think that you have a responsibility and you can't get mad when people react to it, you know? So yeah. Do you think you'll ever make a romantic comedy or the other side of La La Land? I know you, you made one side, but do you think that'll ever be in your DNA to make something light and fluffy like that? Absolutely. Actually, like my... I have like a crazy idea in my head. Like I really, I, I think my next film I want to do is like more of like, I want to do something that's like a comedy and a little more fun. I think the the world's gotten dark enough and I want to do something with some levity next. So yeah, like I actually, I mean, my dream would be to make a film in every genre. I think that's like, you know, as a genre, a lover, like I love genre films. I think all genres have a great, way of communicating different aspects of life. So I'd love to do like a comedy, like a kind of punch drunk love-esque, you know, um, dark comedy or something like that. Um, I just saw The Beach Bum recently by Harmony Corinne. And he had said something similar where I, I, he was like in the, he was a Q&A with him. And he was like, you know, all my films have been so dark. Like the world had gotten way too dark for me. So I wanted to make something that had a little light in the world. And I watched this film and I cried because the character was so beautifully constructed and poetic and it's such a beautiful outlook on life. And, and um, you know, he was actually like always trying to be the best he could be. And, and so, yeah, I would love to make something that was fun and exciting and adventurous and, you know, human and not necessarily bogged down. I actually, I, I, because this new film, The Fibrils of Success, I think it has a great message in it, but it's, it's a pretty dark struggle. The guy goes through, it's a journey and uh, it's even personally affected me. So I think the next time, you know, I want to take a break, not only um, psychologically for my own well-being, but just also like what I want to put out there. I think I'm going to do something more fun, more like uh, funny. I don't know. I've always wanted to write a comedy. So I, I have an idea that I, Hopefully next I could do is something that's a little more lighthearted and I don't know, maybe something that's not R or NC-17 rated. Just real, just skimming the surface a little bit without going too deep into it. Why did it affect you personally? You're spending a lot of time living in the head of a guy that just got out of prison and is sitting in a room by himself and he's a very silent guy. You spend a lot of time trying to tell people what he's thinking inside. And I think, and you're dealing with death, you're dealing with, the film deals with a lot of childhood trauma, stuff like that. Um, 
any image or sound that is out there affects you. So when you're taking it in at such a high velocity, you know, it just starts affecting you. And, you know, I did my first film, Queen, is a pretty violent, uh, intense kind of like dark odyssey. Trespassers is a super violent horror thriller um, and deals with some pretty dark subject matter. And then this film, you know, which I think is actually out of the three, probably the more positive in its messaging at the same time, it, you know, you, you're, you're following a pretty uh, guy, you know, trying to navigate a kind of dark world. So I think for me, it's just spending a lot of time, you know, I'm editing the film by myself. So a lot of times just me alone with that film and with that world. And I'm actually editing the film in the room. We shot a lot of the film in, so there's this whole meta going, it's going on. So I think next I'm gonna do something fun and like, if, you know, if I'm ever allowed to make a movie again, <laughs> I'm going to do something more fun and more lighthearted and, uh, I don't know, you know, maybe a little more family friendly. Meet the Fockers. I love Meet the Fockers. It's fantastic. That's what I'm saying. Like, I love those. I even like do like an action movie that's like kind of fun, like a buddy, like a buddy, com I'm dying to do like a buddy comedy. Like that's like next, like I really want to do like a fun, uh, kind of outrageous buddy comedy and we'll see where it lands, you know? I think you'll be allowed to make another movie. <laughs> Thank you.